Hello and welcome to the Plebeian Power Hour with your hosts, Tiffer and Kim. Today we're going to be talking about, okay, this was me. I chose this topic and I'm going to explain why. The United States has said that it should plan on being prepared for a war with China in the next three years. And so I thought that it was in all of our best interests to learn about the U.S.-China relations and to go all the way back, because you know me, I go all the way back and kind of figure out why we have the relationship with China as the United States that we do right now. Yeah, so we're kind of expecting that this is going to end up being a two-part. Three, uh, four, three, seven. Multiple episodes because this is a very large topic. So we wanted to start with the history, but ultimately we kind of wanted to get to maybe like current events, you know, U.S. and China, current relations. Right. To but jump to ahead. There, oh. Yeah. There in, in the war prep that's being discussed, and I sent you this, this video where it kind of explains just how much prep work is doing. This all started with China putting a base. They're going to put a base on Cuba. And I was like, whoa, that does feel terrible. And then I watched this video and find out United States is putting about 20 bases more than they already have in Japan and in the Philippines. And it was like, oh, this might be a bigger deal than I realized. Yeah. So that was kind of was the, I don't know, impetus or whatever behind the topic. And we started looking into the topic and it's very large. Of course, that's that's history for you. That's history, mm-hmm. but we wanted to go, you know, into history to get an idea of why maybe, you know, our relationship with China is the way that it is now. Mm-hmm. So we started looking at, you know, the history of U.S.-China relations, right. and uh, I think you had gone further back than you know I, I had. do. So, um, I'm going to give a bit of a timeline here just to kind of put this in perspective. So in 1776, America declares independence. 1783 is the end of the Revolutionary War. And in 1784, the Americans send their first ship to China to try and be recognized with their diplomatic recognition, in which China is like, no, we don't recognize you. Because they had a very strong relationship with Britain at this time. Because, (laughs) and this goes... I mean, you can go all the way back to the 1600s here where we have the opium wars in 1839, but all of that starts in the 1600s because Britain starts bringing in opium into China because, and this becomes a bigger thing when we hit the opium wars, because Britain is trading with China, but China is not trading with Britain. So yeah, China all, basically says, we don't need anything that you yes, have. We have They everything. have it. They're happy. They're fine. They don't need any crumpets with their tea because they're fine. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but Britain's not fine. Britain wants the tea. You know, Britain doesn't have tea. They've got tea over there and mm-hmm. the, not just tea, but there's silk and, you know, fancy furniture and stuff that, that Britain didn't have. So Britain really wants to trade. China doesn't care one way or the other that, you know, China doesn't want anything that Britain has to offer. So Britain finds something Something that they want, which was opium from India, which 
And I rabbit hold all these things that wasted my time. So India is, you know, a very uncollected country at this point. And it actually was gigantic. I didn't realize that it included um, several other countries that are there right now, including Afghanistan. So they have like, they go into India and they, it is not a colony at this point, but they kind of take over the opium. They, they shuffle it into China <clears throat> to get their silver back. Anyway, China sees that India has been uh, clobbered in a way, and it makes them like very wary of Britain. And you can't explain Chinese relations with the United States without explaining all of these other nuanced parts, because one of the reasons I think that China has their opinions of the United States at this point is because of the things that these other countries have done. That's the way I kind of looked at mm-hmm. it is that I it, it became more of a the West, you know, yes. the US, Britain, Europe, they're all indistinguishable to right. China at this time in particular is there's not really a, a difference. Right. So, and yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this comes in later. I'll bring it up later, but it has something to do with it tends to be either Britain's or the United States' fault when any of these negative things that eventually happen to China, like when it all starts, it does tend to start because Britain or the United States, and more, more often Britain than the United States, kind of start itching some feathers. Yeah, because if you go back in history at the time, you know, in the early 1800s, whatever, the U.S. is, is not really a power at all. And the U.S. Is, gets involved in the opium trading, but it can't do it the same way. You know, Britain's got India right there where it's getting tons of opium. The U.S. doesn't have that. I think it got most of it's from like Turkey or something, and it's taking it over, and it only has like a very small percentage of trade. Yes. Is the U.S. is, is involved, but it's not like Britain is of, involved. Of the East India Trading Company. Yeah. So they have the East India Trading Company, which, I mean, I tell you, I went down this India rabbit hole. They come over and they're trading opium and other things and spices with India. And then when India starts rebelling, and this happens later, they just, the trading company went in and took over the government. And the queen's like, okay. (laughs) But it was because of the trade that they just went in and were like, yeah, you are too going to be trading with us and took over India. You'll have to remember that for future as to why China reacts the way that it does is because these kind of things have just happened in India and we'll get to that when it's time. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about China at the time is it's under it's got its own um emperor. Yeah, the Qing dynasty, which had been under imperial rule with different dynasties for two thousand years at this point. Yeah, so for two thousand years China's been under imperial rule and mm-hmm. they've been under this particular family dynasty, the um, right Q-I-N-G, now King, Queen, I don't know oh, how to pronounce it. Oh, is it King? It. I have no idea. I, oh, my, you'll uh, find that a lot with us. Is We read that's stuff right. and we don't check the pronunciation. I thought it was Queen, but there is no U, so it could be King. I don't know. But regardless, there, there's this emperor and 
China has essentially been the powerhouse in, you know, that Eastern Asia, I don't know, for 2,000 years, let's say. You know, they really have been the power. And one of the things that they um, did is you don't just walk in and start trading with China. You have to bring a, a gift to the emperor, and then they will let you trade. And what they had done was they had opened up like one port. One port, Canton. And that one port was the only place that um, foreigners were allowed to trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that that was bypassed with like smuggling and, and stuff like right. that. But as a general rule, there was the one city that you were allowed to trade in. And But something happened. British East India Company goes bust in 1834. It loses its charter and it dissolves. And this is where Americans tried to come in and take over the opium trade to China. So they're going in and they're like, okay, well, we'll be the ones that transport this now into Canton. But they still had plenty of British merchants doing this, but it isn't the monopoly that the British East India Company was. So before they were dealing with one group, now they're dealing with tons of groups. And so now China is mad. And the chief superintendent of trade in China in 1939 says to Britain, you need to get this opium out of our country. And Britain's like, no, this is so much money to us. So they stole it. And they burned 1,150,000 kilos of cocaine on the Humen Beach, <laughs> which made the British pissed. It, it really <laughs> did. And, you know, uh, the big reason, I think, for that wasn't, a, you know, a trade deficit. It really was, you're making our people sick. You know, we have all these people who cannot function yes. because you're pumping all this opium in. And by the more 19- you pump in, the richer you get. So you just keep yes. pumping it in. And by 1840, there were 10 million opium addicts on estimation in China. Yeah. That's gigantic. It, it is. It is huge. Because the population was in the 300, like it was about the size of America at, the, at that time. So when they're saying million. no opium, like this isn't, a, yeah. you know, you can't trade. It, it, it was, it was a, quit making our people sick. It, it was drugs. It was drugs. Get the drugs out of the our drug country. Cartel <laughs> the drug cartel was bringing in all these drugs. <laughs> I laughed for a while when I was like, America was infiltrating a country with drugs and now here we are yeah (laughs) but it is harder when there's multiple prongs of people instead of one and and you got to remember too that there are no laws against this at the time you know like not in the u.s not this wasn't a regulated thing like it is now Mm -hmm. uh, until we'll say 1839 when the regulation is get it all out of here and don't and China's mad because Britain is not leaving. And Britain's mad because they just want to get their silver back. And, right? and from their perspective, they're doing legal trade. Yes. And their legal goods were seized and burned without them getting any compensation. Right. So that from their perspective, they just had all their goods stolen. Yep. And, and that makes them so mad. 
And so what they... Which is weird, because after burning a bunch of opium, you would think yeah, everyone like would be like, down a little la, bit. la, 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 together. <laughs> Just everyone's kumbayaing in a circle. Like, I don't know why, but everyone at the beach is having a great time. Well, all the British troops are stationed further away, <laughs> and that's the problem. They were up, downwind, upwind, what's upwind, that's it. They were upwind. They didn't get to party. Yeah, so the British send in uh, troops, and, and it's mostly Navy, so, you know, yes, Brit- lots of, Britain's I, a long ways a away, and they have, you know, troops, you know, probably, and, and this might be the you know, East India Company that really has these troops or whatever, but well, they start sending their, their Navy in. So the their Navy there, and they have is... two ships. And it far outclasses anything that oh, China has. Like, China has no defense against mm-hmm. this Navy because they can just shoot cannons. Oh, yeah. And China can't do anything against them. There's a painting that I came across where you have the, the huge British ships and then... In this particular first fight, there are 29 Chinese boats. And they show the boats, and they're open boats with several rowers on the side. Just like just like a large fishing vessel. Like, these are not built yeah. for any kind of battle, and they lost hardcore. And there's really nothing that they could... They could do. They, these ships would bombard the towns or whatever until... Essentially, yes. they beat them into submission, and the Chinese said, "Okay, you know we, you know we give up. You win." And I want to talk really briefly about colonialism at this time, because people talk a lot about how you know America was a colonialist country and blah blah blah. America does not hold a candle to how rude some of these other countries were when they overtook their colonies, and Britain was not nice. They would come in and they would batter and beat and kill and whatever if they wanted trade. It didn't matter. And so, you know, instantly Britain starts taking over many, many Chinese ports at this time. And essentially what they do is they go to the Chinese and say, here's the deal. You know, we won and you're going to give us what we want. And Mm -hmm. what we want is you open up these additional ports for trade. And they made China pay reparations. They made them pay reparations, For the, which was... For all of the burned drugs. Which was a lot. It was 60,000 British pounds at the time, which was a lot. And while this is happening, so the U.S. also is kind of involved. The U.S. goes... I don't think they were really involved in the fighting, but they come in and sign their own treaties after Oh, the I fact. know the history of this. So Britain signs a treaty about all of this stuff. It's called the Treaty of Wang Xia. And, um, oh, I'm sorry. That's the United States. I was going to say, I thought it was the Treaty of Nanjing, Nanking, um, that they signed with Britain. But it's true. That was in 1842. Two years later, America comes in with the Treaty of Wang Xia, and um, they give them the same privileges to the United States as they gave to Britain. They just sort of tack on to that previous treaty to end um the opiate first opium war and they also included something called extraterritoriality which is where if you're a u.s citizen in china and you commit a crime the united states is in charge of your criminal activity and vice versa 
Yeah, and another thing that they did too is the, you know, I'm assuming it was the British that started it, but in these treaties it also said, oh, and you have to let in our, you know, missionaries and other things like Mm -hmm. that. So the, you know, China would not, you know, let the foreigners in and... And that and was after big. this treaty, it was you have to let us in. You know, you, we're we're coming in, and it, you have to let our you know missionaries and other you know people into your country. And if you look at the whole area, which included in my research Japan, Korea, China, they were all very independent. They didn't enjoy doing trade with other countries. Britain kind of. Um, Pride opened China more than it wanted to, but Japan was a closed country and Korea was a closed country because that will play in later too. But one of the things that they allowed in this treaty is that even though they had the extraterritoriality where they're like, if you commit a crime, your government's responsible for you know punishing you unless they were having ships that operated outside of their treaty, like as commerce, and then China could punish those people. So if you committed murder, your other country's in charge. But if you commit, like, um, what's that word where you're cheating? Fraud? No, when you're smuggling. Smuggling. Yeah. When, if you commit smuggling, China's in charge of you. And a lot of people were just instantly killed. Like, that's how China solved a lot of their problems. <laughs> it's very effective. It was... Very fast. And yeah, I it would have convinced me. <laughs> yeah, so the, that was kind of the you know first opium wars. Then there was a, essentially a second opium right. war. About 10 years later, it's 1856 and it lasts until 1860. And this is ridiculous. This kind, I mean, because I am reading information from the United States. I'm reading it from Britain. I am not reading it from France, even though French were involved. I do not read French. So um, they're like, oh, well, we actually are unhappy with with how we want our trade to increase. And the last treaty is not meeting our needs. So we're going to have another war. <laughs> yeah. And it, there was more to it because the, the Chinese were also unhappy. Because really, they felt like they got bullied, and they did, and they did get bullied. Mm-hmm. So they end up kind of uh, attacking, you know, British ships. And it, in one of the instances, the um, a, a British ship gets attacked, and the British mm-hmm. retaliate, and that uh, was kind of what started the, you know, the the big fighting is that the British said, hey, you got to do something that, you know, your ship attacked our ship, and the Chinese didn't, you know, they didn't do anything. So the British uh, got mad, mm-hmm. brought their ships back in to start bombarding uh, the, the Chinese, and, you know, for, uh, you know, several years there was fighting, and, and I think that the fighting kind of, uh, there was a treaty that they did in like 1859 where I think, you know, the British were essentially winning. They come up with this treaty and the, the Chinese yes. won't ratify it. Like they're like, we're not accepting the terms. Right. And so the British marched on, you know, they took the city of Canton, which is that coastal mm-hmm. city. They had a population of like a million people and the British took it with like 6,000 troops 
and they lost, I think they had 15 people killed and 113 injured. But then they started marching into the mainlands going after, uh, they went to, towards, you know, what would have been like Beijing, but they the summer palace where the yes. emperor lived, they marched on the summer palace and essentially burned and looted that. Yes. And they talked about going to the Forbidden City, which I don't know too much about, but uh, it was... They didn't. They decided they didn't. not to. Yeah, they decided not uh-huh. to. Also, at this time, this is where I want to say, this is when Britain had just taken over India. So Britain went in, you know, was trading with India for a long time. And then India's like, no, we don't want to. So, you know, Britain comes in. Oh, they'd already been taken over by, in some ways, by the trading company. But now this is Britain coming this in. This is the official. This is the official. And they take it over in 1858. So this is in the middle of the Second Opium War. So I imagine, this is where my brain goes when I'm doing my research, is that the emperor is like, I don't want that. You know, don't yep. do that. So eventually, it's they sign a treaty. And it is not to China's advantage. Yeah, these two treaties, and I and I do kind of want to go back just to make one mention that I forgot to mention. is after the first Opium War in the treaty that they signed. That was when the British essentially got Hong Kong. The island oh, of Hong yes, Kong was, that's right. was given to the British at that time. It was supposed to appease them, and it did not. And it really wasn't. <laughs> You know, it wasn't what Hong Kong is now today. At the time, I think it was little more than a, just a rock, but it was there. The British wanted it so that they could have a place to go with their ships to repair their ships and to potentially set up storage factories for, you know, their trade goods. Their opium. For, for their opium <laughs> for and whatever they were kids. getting, you know. We've got these scones. So that, that was, um, you know, that's kind of a thorn that Hong Kong, you know, all these things that happened in these treaties, the Chinese refer to these treaties as the unequal treaties. So yes, in and their, I would agree. They in their definitely history, are not equal. Yeah, they they are not happy with these, you know, treaties. They essentially were bullied into accepting this as mm-hmm. you can either sign the treaty or we will keep, you know, burning your cities down or whatever. Yes. And what happened here that has to do with American relations is America sends a diplomat named John Ward to help get China to ratify the treaty. And so one of the reasons that they signed this treaty eventually is because America said, this is in your best interest. You should definitely sign this. It's, you know, (laughs) and so (laughs) a lot of people, because what you have to understand is happening at this time is a ton of side stuff going on between Japan and mostly Japan and even the U like Russia at this time. So there's other stuff going on as well. And I'll talk about that really soon because it kind of starts exploding pretty soon. Um, but there's a lot of animosity now in the Chinese people towards Westerners. Yeah. Because I'm sure it would probably be really difficult to know, like, which Westerner was from what sometimes. Yeah, that's why I kind of think, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S., Britain, they were just all kind of thrown into the same group as far as, you know, China was concerned at this time. So I see what you have there about Chinese immigration. 
And I really wanted to go down this and see what it was. But Chinese immigration starts amping up at this time because in China, they're having struggles and war. So I could not tell from the brief research that I did if China had on their own accord shipped out laborers. But it does seem to be what happened. Yeah, the, these these aren't, you know, slaves that were no. taken against their will. Uh-huh. My guess is they're just people who don't have better alternatives. Right. And, and originally... who, who probably believe, oh, yeah, things will be better. If you go over, you know, you'll, you know, into the prosperous mm-hmm. West, you know, things will be better. An- another thing that was part of that second treaty um, after the second oh, opium wars was mm-hmm. that the British made an a, agreement with the Chinese that they would be the ones who would charter, you know, the Chinese over oh, yeah. to the Americas. And so oh. that they the British kind of took over that, you know, we'll call it trade, but <laughs> essentially they're just making money shipping, you know, Chinese immigrants to America. Right. And and at the time, if you remember, there's a lot of like sugar production going on in like the Bahamas region and Cuba and things like that. And that is where they went first. They went to these other colonies and started helping and I think they called them coolies is what they yeah. called. And I don't know if that's an offensive term or not, so I hope it's not. They, they, they keep <laughs> but, putting it in print, so I yeah. assume that it's not. So but... I assume it's not, too. So I don't mean any ill intent. I was just reading. Uh, I was saying aloud what I read. But, um, but then they started bringing them to the United States for the gold rush. Yeah, the California. gold rush in California. Mm-hmm. So they're bringing a bunch there, and they're not railroads. really making money. And then the railroads... Yeah. And, and not just railroads, because they also did a lot of, like, agriculture. And, yes. Uh, they, they were kind of, you know, housekeeping, you know, folks right. and whatever. But the railroads was kind of the big one. Is on the western side of the United States, the Chinese, I think, provided, I don't know if it's a majority, but a lot of well, the labor on the If you remember the, the immigration issues that then show their face yeah. around this time, they were doubling the population of the state yeah because california was not very populated at the time the 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 u.s was barely getting people into california Mm -hmm. and at one point the chinese made up 25 percent of the workforce in california and that's when you started seeing a lot of the laws immigration policies yeah yeah so like the chinese exclusion act and stuff like that and and that you know, Chinese Exclusion Act doesn't go over very well with Chinese people. Right. So to them, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a slap in the face is to say, yeah, we don't want any more of your people coming over to our country, mm-hmm. which is a little bit amusing because China wouldn't let anybody in, you know, <laughs> to their country at all until, you know, they were kind of forced to. But then when they're told that, yeah, you can't come over here, they're like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of mean. This segues lovely into the first Sino-Japanese War, too, because at the time I was saying that, you know, Japan was an independent country. It did not. It was called an isolationist country. Korea was an isolationist country. China was not, but they were more isolationist than, like I said, British than, kind of than anybody, yeah, than what we be. would expect. They were pretty isolationist, and they were kind of, you know, forced into not being isolationist. Right. So but, what happens here with the first Sino-Japanese War 
is in 1853, here comes American Matthew Perry into Japan. And Japan is like, no, we don't want to trade with you. And he's like, yes, you do. So they're <laughs> like, okay. So they set up treaties between the United States and Japan called the, at the convention of Kanagawa. Okay. And at this time, this is like, like we're headed into the civil war situation going on in America. Right. But we open up trade with Japan. Well, now Japan's like, you know what? We want trains. We want yeah. automobiles. Like, we want... Not there were no... They didn't want automobiles. But they wanted the Western technology. But they technology. wanted the Western technologies, and they start realizing they do not have the resources to advance themselves. They don't have the oil. They don't have, you know, the metals. They don't have the things that they need. So they turn over to China, and they're like, well, they do... Yep. So they start a... And they had started industrializing, so the the yes. China didn't. China had trade going on, but China was kind of stuck in its own, you know, we're, we're really awesome. Mm -hmm. We don't need to, you know, advance or change yes. or do whatever. And Japan kind of realized, hey, we're, we're so far behind. Like, we didn't understand how far behind we were. They want to become, you know, a, a world power. Yes. And so they start industrializing and they start uh, training their army, getting modern equipment like machine guns and stuff like that. And China doesn't have any of that stuff. So when Japan essentially starts this war, which they didn't start until 1895. So in 1895, right. they go over and... Well, they'd already done some stuff with Korea at yeah. this point. Japan decides, oh, we're going to go into Korea and we're going to trade with Korea because it's just right there. Well, Korea had lost its king in 1864 and he had died without a, a male heir. So they had to go down to the next family relative who was 12 years old. And so they put in that 12-year-old's father. And um, he is the one that shoved Korea out of isolationism because... I don't know why, but he was like, yeah, let's do this. And then the sun takes over and then it's like chaos. So Japan is like, hey, come here. <laughs> let me let me tell you what you're going to do. Kind of takes over. And even in that uh, Sino-Japanese war, a lot of that fighting does take place in Korea. Because right. I, I think Korea. They're coming up from Korea into the Manchurian area, which is right above Korea. Yeah, it, and that Manchurian area will come into play a lot. That's a very ends up being a very contentious, you know, zone. Mm -hmm. I think it's very resource rich, and it which is. is something that the Japanese, you know, needed. They've got a small island. They're trying to become a world power, and they need resources yes. that they don't have on Japan. Because you'll have Russia, which is going to soon become the USSR, playing into that area as well. So there's a lot of conflict going on between Korea. China, Japan, and Russia for this chunk of land that everybody seems to love. Yeah, so the Chinese had, um, they had purchased like some German battleships. So they, they were, they had an okay Navy, but their army was, was pretty terrible. I think that I was seeing something that said 40% of their army didn't have any sort of, you know, weapon. gun or weapon. 
So, the, you know, they're using, you know, whatever they can find, whether it's, you know. Do you think that's why martial arts are so big? So <laughs> that's a whole different thing. But, yes, <laughs> martial arts be, kind of became big because the, the way that I had heard it was, like, peasant forces, and this was more, mm -hmm. I think, in Japan, weren't allowed yes, to have, you know, weapons. Japan. And so they would train themselves how to fight without, you know, these weapons mm -hmm. because they weren't allowed to have any. But anyway, getting back to, you know, the... You can't help it. You have to go off topic sometimes because it just does. <laughs> it just it just does. It just does. So you've got a, the Taiping Rebellion going on inside China at this time as well. So China is getting beat up when it comes to the love of its people. So you still have the Qing Dynasty and they are angry. They're so angry because... They have um, this man named Hong Shiuquan who had been studying with an American missionary and then decided he wanted, you know, China to be more like America. And he starts a rebellion in the country and he marches to Nanking and he issues and I mean, he causes a separation between the north and south of China that lasted for a decade. And then King, the King Dynasty, or however you say it, hired American soldiers of fortune to come and fight off the rebellion. So they used Americans, um, they paid mercenaries. American mercenaries to end this rebellion. So I thought that was an interesting American-China relation. Yeah. The other thing that in that Sino-Japanese War, uh, Japan took the island of Taiwan. So they that yes. belonged, you know, to the Chinese empire and Japan took it and and remember this is a tiny almost unmanned place at this time. Like there's not a lot of people on Taiwan at this point. And it's also, you know, it's an island that's off you know, China, and it's not that far away from other Japanese islands. Yeah. So I think the Japanese kind of felt like, you know, maybe they had a claim to it, but they end up taking that island. Korea had, um, I don't know that they were necessarily part of China, but they had kind of a, an alliance with China, and that was broken uh, after this. And, and they, That's because after they took um, the Manchurian area, Korea had been kind of screwed over by Japan yeah. and China had now been screwed over by Japan. And so I do think they had some common ground for a little while. So that was in kind of 18, you know, 95. Oh, oh, I remember, I remember what happened. So what happened is Russia starts to threaten Korea and Korea says, China, what should we do? And China's like, you should be friends with Japan because Russia's scary. <laughs> so they started working with Japan, and then... Um, Which is amusing if you know the history, that oh, yeah. Japanese-Korean thing is the the relationship between Japan and Korea is still kind of... Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not great because during this time when Japan was over there in Korea, they were not very nice to the Korean people. No, but guess what? They opened up trade to Korea through Japan... So Korea is like, well, now we're going to trade with anyone. And they made a treaty with the United States. And that also made China a little upset because they're like, hey, like, 
we told you to be friends with Japan, but why are you being friends with everybody? And Korea is probably like, because uh, they trade, they give us all this cool stuff. <laughs> no. Look at all these trinkets we get to play with now. Uh, during this time, like Chinese sentiment towards the West starts falling even further mm -hmm. uh, to the point where there ends up being something called the Boxer Rebellion. So the Boxer Rebellion happens, I think it, you know, kind of starts in 1899, but it's the, essentially in, uh, a, a group of pro-Chinese people who are anti-Western. Wait, I have something I need to say first. Okay. Um, before the Boxer Rebellion and back to the Korean-Japanese-China issue, I one of the reasons China was upset, and I just feel like I, I want to explain it a little bit more, is when Japan made the treaty with Korea, they were acknowledged as an independent nation making a treaty with Japan. So when the United States made a treaty with Korea, they acknowledged them as an independent nation. And China was like, no, you can't sign that treaty because they're part of China. You have to sign it with us. And the United States were just like, no, no, nope. <laughs> we see them as their own independent country, which made China upset at the United States. OK, now let's talk about the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. So, you, I mean, it, it really kind of started you know, even earlier, like I think in 1897, um, a, a bunch of like German missionaries were killed. So the Germans, you know, they get mad and they retaliate and they go occupy, you know, uh, one of the coastal cities. And um, every Western nation then starts going in and kind of carving. Okay, well we want a we want a city, and every they start carving their own. They were calling them, you know, spheres of influence. Right. And they're just trying to get their own sort of, you know, set of territory that that they will, you know, kind of control more than other, you know, Western areas. Right. So the Chinese have, you know, this group who is violently opposed to this and they start attacking, you know, anybody Western and and even, you know, the like. Chinese Christians are kind of fall under that is like okay you're under you're under that western spell or whatever and the empress of uh, China and, and it, again I, I don't know enough about how that works because there's an emperor and there's an empress and the empress declares war on she calls them the invaders but basically anybody you know western like kill them all sort I of thing didn't know that. and the, the the generals essentially are like, eh, nah, and and they don't really follow the order. But in Beijing, there's a, kind of a district of, um, I'm trying to remember the word, like diplomats so, essentially. Do you think this started because this is about the time when Congress passes the Scott Act and says limits immigration from Chinese people? Do you think that this has anything to do with that? I am. I mean, I mean, it might, but what I honestly think is, it's, it's just a culmination of lots of dislike. lots of it's true. issues. You know, like the I think they're just generally unhappy that they felt like China used to be, you oh, know, the yeah. big dog over in and Asia, now and now they're not. Everything. You know, that like Japan is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, essentially come in and you know they beat up China themselves, and all these Western countries are coming in, and then the Western countries start you know, taking, all right, we're going to, we're going to operate here. And mm -hmm. regardless of what the Chinese say, 
Well, what's interesting, too, is there doesn't seem to be a big differentiation at this point between what China thinks of Britain and what China thinks of the United States, even though Britain tends to be the main aggressor in most of these things. They do. And the U.S. just kind of is like... But part of that might be because the U.S. isn't in a position to be the aggressor. And and I don't know what the the rule is. So even then, like, the U.S. is still probably you know number you know seven or eight down the power yes. pole at that time and and during that boxer rebellion the u.s uh secretary of state john hayes sends out what he calls the open door notes and yes. he sends those out to um you know britain russia you know germany all the you know these countries that are dealing with china and he's saying you know quit carving china up like let's all just have free trade don't take parts of china don't block other people from you know, trading, because one of the things that's happening is these, you know, I don't know that it's countries, companies or whatever, but they'll come in and they'll, hey, we'll help you build that railroad. Okay, only we get to, yes. you know, use the railroad. And the U.S. is the one saying, you know, don't, like, don't do that. Like, let's just all, we'll just have this free market and we'll all benefit and we won't, you know, we don't need to take over China and colonize it. And... And that's a big thing. It it was a big deal. That was, if you were writing a paper about large changes in world anything, the open door notes changed the world. Because it used to be far more prevalent that a country would just come in and take over the resources it wanted to because it was bigger. Yeah, if you had the power, Mm -hmm. then you could just, yeah, this is mine now. Yeah. And, and so now they're saying, you know what? You guys are all about capitalism. Let's let people be capitalists. And um, you'll see that it plays in later when in the United States and Chinese relations where the Communist Party later comes in and switches all of that because of the way that... Um, other countries were taking over the rail lines and other and those kind of things. Yeah. I do think that was a huge player in why the country became communist in the future. See, and I wouldn't be the least bit surprised mm-hmm. because, you know, like, communism aside, the general thought was we're being exploited. Uh-huh. And they and, were. And, and so regardless of whether, you know, like, communism is the answer or whatever, they're feeling like, they need something to stop that exploitation. Well, because if you, if you put it into a different perspective, the United States had their industrial revolution. And Japan, because they took over the Manchurian area, starts to have an industrial revolution. China's industrial revolution does not come until the 1980s. They don't even have it because other people were in charge of their things and then they became a communist country and that caused its own problems that it wasn't until china became a quasi-communist quasi-capitalist that they started to have their industrial revolution yeah so and they're way behind technologically at this at this point (laughs) not now but at this point and and that's what allows you know so you know during this boxer rebellion the um the the west which i think they had like somewhere like six to eight countries kind of combined and brought in 20,000 troops to Beijing to put down this boxer rebellion because they had all their, you know, diplomats and 
um, you know, business people who are trading that are in Beijing, and they get um, they get like basically barricaded. There was like one of the I can't remember if it was German or English. Uh, oh, it was German. A German baron went to go talk to this empress. So after the empress says, you know, war on all things, you know, Western, uh, this German baron decides to go talk to the empress, and he just goes, you know, him and his, you know, crew of transport people, and he gets murdered in the streets. And so all the other diplomats and whatever that are in there, they all kind of uh, turtle up in their little area, and they get barricaded in there for like 55 days. And they're wow. afraid that, you know, if they go out, they're going to die. And the, the these boxer, you know, rebellion, you know, folks are uh, essentially attacking them like nearly every day. And they even did something, they would essentially just like make a, like a, a brick wall and then just make another brick wall right behind. And they would just gradually take steps in towards these people who were boxed in uh, until, you know, help came. And after, you know, those 20,000 troops that came in were able to put the whole thing down and then they get to go negotiate again. Yeah. And they go and say, you know, arm anybody, you know, anybody that was involved in the government that was involved in this, you know, rebellion, we want you to, you know, kill them or whatever. Because don't forget the United States is one of the countries that sent part of those 20,000 troops. So when we're sliding in the China-U.S. relations, yep, it wasn't just those other countries. They've now essentially said it's us versus you for sure. And this, as, you, as we go across the next few things, there's a revolution coming to kick out the dynasty and to become almost a, it's not democratic at all but to set up a different kind of government so when we read the next few things kind of know that that's coming yeah and one last thing with this boxer rebellion is when they do you know the i don't even know if it was like formal treaty or whatever that ended it but they do the old you know you, you owe us money for yes, the damage and the for reparations the, and and so they go and say hey you owe us all this money and China is set to pay out money for like 39 years. Can you, okay. Can you believe this? Because, I mean. It, it's insulting. <laughs> like it's it, very insulting. It, and it's one of those things that nowadays I think oh, we yeah. kind of know a lot better, you know, because, you know, the big example would be Germany in World War II. Is, uh-huh. You know, after World War One, Germany, you know, was defeated and everybody said, yeah, you, you got to pay for everything. And yeah. it just kind of bankrupted, you know, Germany. They had crazy inflation and what happens is somebody comes in and says you know hey we don't have to live like this let's all you know have this nationalist pride and i think people see that as okay let's not do that sort of thing but at the time that was just standard practice and the one of the reasons that i wanted to bring it up was because in 1908 the u.s said hey whatever you still owe us never mind yeah, they had them you don't put have it towards. To. No, they still made them pay. Well, they didn't but make they made them pay. Them pay themselves. Yeah, they and put it into science and libraries. So they, what happened is the the Chinese would send over people to U.S. universities and stuff like that, and this money was used to pay for stuff like oh, that. Oh, interesting. So the U.S. was the using part. it to kind of educate the Chinese and say, "Look, this money that you were going to pay us because you know you." 
you know, fought us when we were in your country, instead yeah. of paying it to us, you know, put it towards this use. And mm-hmm. and to me, that was like kind of amazing. Like that's one of those times where I go, you know, like good for I'm us. I'm gonna wave my flag. Good for us. <laughs> yeah. But you do kind of find that because of all of the aggressive countries that were inside China, I mean. I could not imagine being China because you must feel quite helpless because you don't have weapons for your people. And and people are literally coming in and, like, staking claim to your territory. It has been yours for thousands of years. Yeah, and not only that, but you were top dog. Yes. You were top dog for thousands of yeah. years. And now, you know, they they call this the century of humiliation is the prior it, to World War II. I they that. They're looking at this saying, you know, like we were humiliated Uh and it's one of those things that does kind of play into things. They talk about, you know, like technologically we were, you know, outmanned and outclassed and whatever. So let's not let that happen again. They couldn't, they didn't have foot to stand on diplomatically. So, I mean, all these things, the the reason that, you know, we're kind of, what interests us is potentially the U.S.-China relations now but we go look at all this stuff to see what what do, effect it has. I do kind of wonder, too, because right now, when I look at China, I see an overinflated ego. I wonder if they feel some sort of national compensation where they're overcompensating for this century. <laughs> because they lie, they sneak, they whatever, and they stand so bold and grandiose. And I think, is that because of this kind of stuff where it was like i mean essentially i think there is kind of there is Mm -hmm. something to that is there you know if you don't do that then these big powers will just walk all over you another thing that led up to the revolution of 1911 is that the king dynasty is trying to get their own industrial revolution starting so they have other countries that did come in and they, you know, they're having their own rail systems and things like that. Um, and so the emperor is like, no, all of these are now China's. You guys can't do this anymore. And then he started trying to improve upon the infrastructure of the country by taking out loans from other countries. And they didn't have the money to pay back these loans. And it was causing a lot of economic issues in the country because another way to think about this is this area of the world was shoved into the current age in a way that they didn't slowly develop into. They were just shoved into it. Like they, if you'd have gone back to 1811, you wouldn't have been ready for any kind of, um, what do you call it? railroad system or infrastructure system and the united states was starting their rail system fairly soon in the 1800s well china was like shoved quickly they had to fast forward they weren't ready they didn't have the capabilities and the people had already been so embarrassed they've lost land they've lost wars they've lost um a a lot of people that lived in the areas that were overtaken had lost a lot of their autonomy as Chinese people because they were essentially being ruled over in these areas. And 
the people were very angry at the King dynasty, which led to. Yeah. Cause, and I think a lot of it is because they felt like they were embarrassed, you they know, like so embarrassed. you guys aren't, you know, representing China well or mm-hmm. whatever. And so what ends up happening is the Republic of China is formed and it's yeah. really formed. It's a bunch of kind of military leaders who initially form it is it's kind of formed by. Um, well, the guy actually who took over as the first leader, he was well liked by the people, but because they have this new kind of government and the people don't understand it and it, communications are difficult to get to everybody he gave up his leadership to this other guy who is um named so the first guy was Sun Yat-sen and people liked him they liked him a lot but then he had to give up um his presidency to a military man named Yuan Shikai who established something called the Beiyang government. And he wanted to be the emperor really bad. Even he didn't understand not having an emperor and he tried, but he didn't. Become As I say, like I thought that he <laughs> was for like a year, you know, like he called himself that for a year. He but... might've called himself that, but nobody but really jumped what, on what ends that. up happening is they fall into a period that gets called the warlord period. Yes. And that lasts from like 1916 to 1927. Because he dies in 1916 and they have no process of having anyone fill in behind him. And so they've got like these kind of um, provinces sort of things. Yeah. And everyone kind of has its own, you know, military leader. And, mm-hmm. and so even though they technically have... This Republic of China with yep. like one leader, they, that's not really the leader. And but so when this. you want to do business, wherever you go, you have, you have to, to do, do business, do business the with area. the warlords. Mm-hmm. But this is 1916 and it starts to develop. But 1914 to 1918 is World War I. And China never sent any troops, but they joined a side and it just added more division into the country. Yeah, they they didn't really you know participate in any fighting. You know, like I saw some stories that said that they sent people over to like help out. You know, like here's people that can work in factories and that can repair mm. stuff and do stuff like that. But realistically, they just kind of were like, um, we'll we'll pick you know we'll pick the winning side and yeah. we'll be on your team. Well, what's funny is so they joined the Allies in World War One, and Japan was an ally. And they didn't fight much either, but they were friends with Britain at this time. And so, um, and China, it was essentially a symbolic joining. Yeah. You'll find in this area, it does seem that they do like to pick whoever is going to win. <laughs> but in It's a good strategy. You pick the loser. It's a, it's a much worse <laughs> strategy. It's true. The USSR is formed and the USSR now borders China. And so you'll you'll see that playing as history progresses. But in 1928, they formed the Chinese Nationalist Party to try to unify the country. But unfortunately, you've also got the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, so in 21, 1921, the Chinese Communist mm-hmm. Party is formed. And it 
it actually works with that nationalist party. So they kind of work together until 1927. The, their, um, this nationalist party is called the Kuomintang and, and it kind of takes control. Mm -hmm. And in 1927, it turns on the communists. You know, they had been working together and in 1927, they're kind of like, we don't need your help anymore. And they start purging and killing, you know, some of these communists. Yeah, they got a new leader and the leader was very anti-communist. So he started. Yeah. So he, he, and and he, like several thousand members of the communist party are killed in China uh, in 1927 when he Mm -hmm. does. And, and so the nationalists end up taking control, uh, and they're kind of actually influenced by the European fascist movements that are going on. So you got the Chinese communists that are influenced oh, no. by the USSR, and you've got these nationalists who are influenced by, you know, the Italy and Germany and their oh, no. rising groups. And so they're, that's, that's what kind of, that's where they're getting their inspiration is more of this fascist side, and they kind of do some of the same tactics. Well, they start fighting against each other, and they have a civil war-type situation going on for 20 years. Yeah, and it goes through, you know, this kind of starts in that 1927 sort of time frame and ends up going through and lasting, you know, after World War II. And that's when it really kind of gets big because that's when, well, that's when the, I think the communists start getting more power. So they're yes. able to put up more of a fight sort of thing. Because, again, you've got the USSR who is becoming something. Yeah. And and it was really big it's to, like, set up, you know, its Iron Curtain and things. Like, the influences that went there were really big. For, and, and there was a lot of, as you hit into the 19th century, a lot of Russian and influences and western influences that cause most of the wars during this time is as the future progresses so (laughs) you'll and you see it you can just see it as it comes in to play with communism and and other things because they all wanted their side to be the stronger side but in 1928 the u.s formally recognizes the nationalists as the official government of china yeah, I think worldwide they were kind of recognized, and the mm-hmm. Communist Party was the smaller, you know, party at the time. So the Republic of China is created, and they are ruling. Although uh, it it really isn't, you know, like I I think there's still kind of this warlord mentality that's going on. Is this mm-hmm. isn't a, a democracy. You know, this isn't a democracy or, you know, even what we would consider a republic as much as it is just there's a handful of people who say, okay, well, you know, we'll let this, you know, guy represent China. Yeah. But what ends up happening, the, you know, Japanese, they, again, are building up and saying, all right, we want to be, we want to be bigger and we want to be, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the big power over here in 1931. They kind of stage, you know, an explosion on a rail line in Manchuria and go, oh, look at you crazy people. We better send our army in there to stop you guys. <laughs> and so they stage this event and go in and take over Manchuria, Manchuria. again. Uh-huh. So 
So they, in 1931, they've essentially got full control over Manchuria and, you know, then they kind of create their own uh, state. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I'm going to call it Manchaogu or something, but uh, they try and, yeah, this is its own country now and they bring in somebody from that, uh, you know, King Dynasty to, to rule it, but that's just a setup for their later invasion. So in 1937, they do kind they, of a full it says scale. It they install a king emperor, but somebody from that dynasty. So the people who'd been ousted, they let them be in charge. Yeah. So you get to be our puppet, area. and they're thinking, "Oh, this might bring us favor, whatever." Is if we bring in, you know, somebody from China's past, but really, yes. It, you know, Japan well, is ruling it. They've got their army stationed there, and they're ruling Manchuria, or what they are trying uh, to create as a second country. And but nobody's recognizing it as a second country. Mm-hmm. So Japan does a full scale invasion. Denied by the United States, as we talk about their diplomatic relations, is they said, "Look at what we did. Look, here's this new place that we just started," and the United States were like, "No, nope." We don't agree with that. We're not going to recognize that. Which, I mean, there's just so much going on <laughs> at this time. But you would think that that would be a, a check mark in the good column. It, it was. And, and mm-hmm. the, the entire World War II thing, I think, was a check mark in the good column. Yes. Because, you know, when after Japan invaded China, the reason that Japan ended up attacking the United States was because the United States responded to the Japan invading China and said, all right, well, then you, we're not giving you any aviation fuel, and we're not doing this, and we're not doing this, and they were essentially going to cut off supplies that Japan needed to become this world power that they wanted to be. So they said, yeah, we will cut you off from these supplies because of your actions in China. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Japan, Sanctions. It, it, yeah. It's pretty much sanction, mm-hmm. sanctions. And, and Japan was so angry that they attacked, um, let's see, where was it? The Philippines, which was a U.S. colony, Guam, which was a U.S. colony, Hong Kong, which was a British colony, Malaya, which was a British colony, and Hawaii, which was an American colony. So, and this is, I so this blew my mind. I did not realize that my parents were alive before America had 50 states. Because <laughs> Hawaii and Alaska joined in 1959. So I, because they were always states when I was alive, it did not occur to me that my yeah. parents were alive when we did not have 50 states. I just think that's crazy. <laughs> it, it is a little crazy to, to think about because you really don't, you know, like in no. your head, you're just kind of like, you know, America has 50, 50 states. states. Look at all and... those stars. And now I'm like, yeah, bring in Puerto Rico. It's fine. Like, we'll just have 51. And then my kids will be like, for their kids will be like, mom and dad were alive before they had 51 states. <laughs> That's right. It'll be cute. <laughs> uh, but World War Two. Japan switches sides. They switch away from being on the Allies to being in the Axis. And 
that's another can of worms. Like Yeah, and they're very unkind to China. Uh-huh. So you, you have things like the rape of Nanking, and you have, they, they dropped um, biological weapons on entire towns, and they did, you know, all sorts of things against the the Chinese that I think the Chinese and is this in the... are not over yet. Ah, uh, yes. That, and, Because I do have, we made a joke before this started about how China can hold a grudge. China can hold a grudge. China can hold a grudge. <laughs> and this is a much more recent thing than, you know, some of the other things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, you know, Japan tries to downplay the, some of the things it did in World War II. And China isn't happy about that. China wants them to come out and say, yeah, we, you know, killed you and, you know, raped your people and did this. Uh-huh. And, you know, Japan doesn't want to do that. So there's this tension between, you know, the two. So is this occurring in Manchuria? No. So this is, so Manchuria, I think that was 1931. And, right, and this is, settled. this is They're going into mainland China. Okay. And, and going, so Manchuria is up right above Korea. Right. and they go into kind of mainland China for uh, in, in 1937. Okay. And they start taking over, like, I mean, not not a ton of China because China is so huge, yeah. but I think they take over most of the bigger, you know, cities and stuff like that. In the like north, that. I imagine. Yeah, and, and I think they even start going down, oh, really? you know, everywhere. So, so Japan starts spreading out everywhere. The Philippines, like you're saying, they go... They are spread out all over the place, you know, and it amazes me that they have the people to do it because they're very small, you know. Well, this is island, another thing. But I... they hold all these other countries, and they go hold them all kind of at the same time, as well as China. I went down the rabbit hole here because by the forties they have a full air force like the whole air fleet that's one of the reasons they could get to all these places very quickly and that's what happened on um at the start of the war which was planned ahead of time in conjunction with germany and italy i didn't realize this i had always thought it for some reason that they're just acting independently but they they had been in talks for quite a while but because they hadn't quite committed um Germany and Italy started a ruckus in Europe, and Japan didn't do anything for a while. And, and I think that Germany and Italy were just going to do their own thing regardless. And, and Japan actually started already. Japan. So so Japan invaded oh, that's China. China in 1937, mm-hmm. and they were true. invading the Philippines and other places first, be, you know, before what we consider, you know, World War II. Uh, they had already been doing a lot of, you know, things. Like Japan was... Fighting, they just weren't fighting right. who Germany and Italy wanted. Germany and Italy wanted them to pull the U.S. away from Europe, and so that was, you know, potentially another reason that Japan attacked, you know, Pearl Harbor was, all right, let's, you know, our allies, Germany and Italy, this will be good for them. Well, which wasn't necessarily true because the U.S. was staying out of the war, and as soon as Pearl Harbor happened. The U.S. was all in, you know, both both fronts and which is really interesting. We had a lot of our our um, Navy, (laughs) say military ships, a lot of our Navy in in these in these places because Guam was a military base. And 
I do believe there was something called the Marshall Islands. Is that what it is? I think there is a Marshall Islands. And don't we have a relative who died on the Marshall Islands in the attack? I am not that sure. That happened at that same time. I believe Dad's uncle was the one who died. But when I went down the rabbit hole, it was because I often think about the difference in technology between the First World War and the Second World War because that's not a lot of time between the two. But I was thinking of Japan because Japan is not, you know, it doesn't have a lot of supplies. What is the word? Resources. Resources. Yeah, they're a smaller island. And I came across this little set of information that I just thought was fascinating. 1903, the Wright brothers invent the first flying aircraft. In 1905, a man in France starts making airplanes. In 1910, some guy in Japan bought their first airplane and he would like show it off. And it was made by this guy in France. And in 1909, the guy in France starts making an airplane. In 1910, Japan buys one from that guy. And then by the time they're in the 1930s, they have an air force. They have airplanes. And in the 1940s, they have some serious airplanes. And I, China does not do this. China does not get an airplane. China does not have an air force. And they don't China, have the navy that no like Japan builds like a navy. Well, because they kind of don't really have much of a government at this point. Yeah. They don't get one until the communists take over after or around World War II. So they don't really have a lot of structure at this point. So poor China. It was a decade of, I mean, a century of and a half of hard stuff yeah they went through a lot and then you know after like world war ii ended uh as part of the you know treaty you know of japan's surrender is it was also you got to give china's stuff back to china and this was the u.s that is pushing for a lot of this stuff the u.s is you know, says, hey, we got to bring China to the table like they're, you know, like they're one of the adults. They were on the And, and other people, side. you know, like Britain was like, no, we don't, we shouldn't do that. The U.S. was the one who pushed and yeah. said, let's, you know, bring China in on this negotiations. And because of that, you know, Taiwan was returned to China. Mm-hmm. And China got a lot of their stuff back from Japan. Which is kind of interesting because as this happens, China then sort of morphs into communism, but Taiwan doesn't. It sort of goes back to its. So, Taiwan, that's (laughs) where the Republic of China goes to. So, Uh the Republic of China goes to hide out in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So, when the communists take power, I didn't realize they went to Taiwan. The Republic of China is kind of forced back and they go and hide out in Taiwan where they're able to defend themselves because it's an island. The communists don't really have, you know, the Navy or anything like that. So they can just sit back on Taiwan. And and so they, you know, the government, the Republic of China, goes to Taiwan and says, yeah, we're we're still the Republic of China over here. You know, even though they're the People's Republic of China over, you know, on the mainland, we're still the legitimate Republic of China. We're the legitimate government. And we're just forced into exile by these crazy loons is the way, you know, that that's the way they're presenting things. <laughs> oh, what a tough time, though. And yeah, 
Yeah. So we'll, we'll probably need to wrap up. I know. Uh, I was just thinking. First... I was like, we've hit, we've hit a point, a good, a good stopping point. Yeah, and we do kind of need to get into that Chinese you know, or the, the the communist civil war when oh, they take power. Oh, and that's such a big topic that it's like, yeah, we can't do that now. And, and we won't be able to, <laughs> you know, get into it and give it the justice it deserves. But we'll kind of talk about it in some ways because some of that stuff is kind of relevant to you know current situation so yeah it's it's just really interesting and it'll be as as time progresses to see how we've gone from you know here we are at the end of world war ii which was a long time ago now and how we're going to hit the point where we are on the brink of war with china yeah, so that's where we're ending it. That might not be the best cutoff point, but uh, we'll pick <laughs> but things we'll up again. we'll bring some more later. That's right. So thanks for listening. Bye. See you.